Groove Cafe. It is the Groove Cafe on RX Radio, and I am Crystal. Excited to hear from my guests and learn what they're passionate about. My guest today is a loctician. Yes, you heard right. A businessman, a photographer, and a car enthusiast. He became an addiction counselor while he was working in the detox unit with the Salvation Army in the UK, helping people addicted to heroin and alcohol. He also trained as a national vocational qualifications assessor. And that was to help people in employment get qualifications in life with their work. Now, 12 years ago, he returned to Uganda and he has some lovely locks and he discovered that there was no one could really work on them well. So that's how he got into locking hair. I have Louis Bismarck Ovon joining me on the Groove Cafe today. <laughs> how are Hi. you doing? I'm okay. I'm good. I grew up in Bogolobi for a couple of years, but in your case... That was like your whole life you grew I was, up in Bugolobi. I was born there in 76, so mm-hmm. been in Bugolobi all my life. And now? Right now I live in Nalia. Okay. But I can't stand going back to Bugolobi. Too many memories. Too so many memories. It's so different. Okay. All right. So you grew up in Bugolobi. Where did you go to school? I went to, I started school at Mbuya Nursery School, the Catholic mm-hmm. school. Then I went to Nakasero Primary School mm-hmm. for seven years. From Nakasero, I went to Tororo College, which is St. Peter's College, Tororo, mm-hmm. for my O-level. Then I went to Uphill College, which is also in Mbuya, mm-hmm. for my senior five and senior six. Then I went to MOBS, which is Macquarie University Business That's School. That's all close by, eh? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've always been around, <laughs> around and about here. Yeah. Uh-huh. Okay. And your name? Louis Bismarck. I'm sure a lot of people ask you. We're going with the French pronunciation. Yes, that's the correct pronunciation. Louis Bismarck. How did that happen? Because Ovon is your father's name. My father's name, yeah. Mm-hmm. Bismarck was a given name. I gave myself that name when I was in senior one because people got excited about my Ovon and Louis name. And in history, there was our Otto von Bismarck. So mm-hmm. people used to call me Otto von Bismarck, Otto von Bismarck. So I thought, why not add the Bismarck to my name? So I became Louis mm-hmm. Bismarck Ovon. Okay. Oh, wow. This is all the way back in S1. So that S1, is. one about 93, 94. Did you put it on like your documents as well? It's actually on all my documents. But funny, my parents never asked me why I have that name. That's crazy. No, no one has ever asked me why I have that name, but it's on all my documents. Maybe they're like, did we put it and we forgot? Maybe we <laughs> maybe we forgot. I actually dropped her name, so probably they thought that I had swapped that for, because I dropped her name I didn't like uh, and took up Bismarck. Okay, yeah. all right. So when did you leave Bugolobi? I left Bugolobi in 2000, about 2000. My parents left Bugolobi in 93, but I stayed behind with relatives. I lived with a relative in Bugolobi until about 2000 when I got a job with Coca-Cola and had to rent on my own Mm -hmm. somewhere around Buya as well. So I rented a boys' quarter in Buya. Your parents left to go abroad? My parents retired. My parents were civil servants, so they retired and went back to current day Bolisa back then it was Masindi district mm, they yeah. went back home home, home as yes. we tend to say mm-hmm. okay and yeah. then at that point you were working with Coca-Cola yes I was working with Coca-Cola started as a store clerk and ended up a warehouse super not supervisor a stock controller okay I was a stock controller for Coca-Cola how long were you with them I was with them for three years I think about three years because I joined in 2000 left in 2003 mm-hmm. yeah. okay 
And then what prompted you to leave Uganda eventually? Ah, my Coca-Cola story is dramatic. Uh, I remember I was in charge of stock and anyone who deals with stock knows there's theft. So there was a lot of theft and so they did some investigations they brought a lie detector mm. so people were incriminated but because i was the stock controller the back ended with me so they had to let me go as well okay so when i left i lost my job i had nothing to do so my brother told me why don't you go and pursue studies so i left for england to go and study marketing mm -hmm. that is chartered institute of marketing it's a professional marketing course yes yes yeah. so everything kind of fell apart here yeah and it was a completely new start for you. New start for me. Yeah. Mm -hmm. How was the UK leaving Uganda? A lot of people talk about the culture shock, uh, the food, <laughs> missing home food. I think I am a strange person. Mm -hmm. One of the reasons I always joke about this. One of the reasons I left Uganda was I was tired of the food. <laughs> and people find that shocking. But I mean, we we have Wait, a what? rich we have a rich food culture, uh -huh. but we are very specific on how we okay. cook. It's always all food with sauce. Okay. All food. Are you a foodie? <laughs> I am not a foodie, unfortunately, or so, rather, fortunately, I'm not a foodie. And because I don't like food, I find it difficult to get what to eat. <gasps> so, going to the UK finding different kinds of food mm -hmm. food done in different ways mm -hmm. was was something for me but also i had lost everything in uganda so i wanted to go and study uh, i had relatives there so it was at least a shock absorber for me mm -hmm. a new start i was still young then i think i was about 24 25 24 25 so i was, mm -hmm. I was really young so i was flexible okay. so so you were I, really open to i was open mm -hmm. because i was like i'm going to a new place this is a new beginning no one knows me here i can do what i want to do mm -hmm. so for me it was like an open book for me to write right so and because i had relatives there it kind of helped as well mm -hmm. but there's also the thing that you're going to the uk it's like greener pastures so i was really really open-minded mm -hmm. yeah. but it can also be a very tough place a very very hard place it is harsh especially and what makes uk harsh is the weather and the loneliness i'd say yeah the people aren't the open they aren't friendly mm -hmm. but you see there's a big not everyone of course not everyone but, mm -hmm. there's a big ugandan community and mm -hmm. like i said i had like my closest cousins were in the uk so for me it was uh, it's like they moved from uganda to the uk like my closest cousins so mm -hmm. it was time for me to catch up with them oh so you really had family so i had fun you had community yeah. okay that made it easier True. then okay so you went to study your marketing course is yes, that what I you did. started doing your know, the area you started working in no i mean my first job i worked as a bin man uh we mm -hmm. used to move from it was a borough outside london a borough is like a city council it was like a town council mm -hmm. so we used to go and collect rubbish but because i was small i'm not really a big person they put me on the area to collect paper recycle paper and and tins and cans so you'd move from street to street collecting cans mm -hmm. and it was a summer job when it went into the winter that's when i started realizing how tough it was because you leave home at five in the morning you start work at six you're collecting paper in the cold but what helped me is that i was on my crew were three two white guys a truck driver mm -hmm. a, a bin man and myself i was the only black person mm -hmm. and these guys did the same job as i did so i didn't feel discriminated and i was like if these guys can do it then 
there's nothing special about me so i felt accepted okay and and these guys were good so it made it very easy for me and i mean if you are a reader i used to find books someone reads a book maybe buys a book reads it once and leaves it so i used to collect books i <laughs> i used to collect video decks i, I remember i found a, a nokia communicator mm-hmm. and then i didn't even have a smartphone but i find a nokia communicator in the bin and it was working perfectly oh wow so so those are the positives i got out of the job Some but the, parts, the biggest yeah. thing was attitude Mm-hmm. And I think that is what has helped me settle back in Uganda mm-hmm. because you're working on a truck, on a job. I mean, if you see these guys, these Kasasiro boys in Uganda, it's the same thing. It's just that there it's in a developed world. Yes. Mm-hmm. So these guys, after their shift, he would jump into his BMW or Mercedes-Benz and go home to mm-hmm. his three or four bedroom house. And I thought, if a bin man can do that, who am i to despise something like that mm. that's when i started realizing that you cannot despise work as long as it puts food on your table yeah. and feeds you absolutely and, 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 and you, yeah. as long as it pays you as long as it pays your bills you're good to go as long as it's not illegal mm-hmm. oh go. yes let's add that yeah. but attitude and humility are very important very. a lot of people because we keep talking about people uh, young people joining the workforce now and why for some not all of course but for some there's an unwillingness to start at the bottom which you know many of us started I was my first job I think I was a lifeguard then a receptionist start at the bottom and then you work your way up True. okay so how long were you in the UK then I was in the UK for seven years okay. uh, of course after my first job my fortune stand mm-hmm. I I got a job with McDonald's then I got a job with a supermarket but all these were learning experiences for me I remember in a supermarket I worked with a guy who was a professor mm-hmm. and I used to stack shelves like what you do when you walk into capital shoppers or in of these supermarkets mm-hmm. and you see people stacking shelves with products that's what I used to do okay but there was this university professor and he said you know what education stressed me and I wanted to do something that would really calm me down that would I mean that would relax me and he started doing supermarket work and wow. I'm thinking if a professor can do this why can't I do it so I remember I used to work on the night shift and mm-hmm. one time a friend called me and said I have this gig for you as a night security worker in a detox unit and I was like fine I can do that luckily it's night so I'll work during the night and go to school during the day mm-hmm. and that's what I started doing so that was when I got into addictions I started as a security person but later because I was kind of educated it was in line with customer service and what I started learning about addictions and mm-hmm. and counseling okay wow that's quite an interesting turn it can either go one way or the other you know True. either you are traumatized and you get out of there or you're like I want to help people and True, that's where true. you went okay true. so what did it take did you have to take courses you um to start counseling was a support available now one thing i loved about england is if you get yourself into a job and probably i'll later talk about this what they call the nvq mm-hmm. i started by basically talking to people because counseling is about talking to people mm-hmm. and empathy mm-hmm. so and i was educated so i'd understand some of these things i started reading a lot about what i'm doing when someone would come out in the night oh i'm 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 feeling low 
what can I do? You talk to them. You have one-to-one sessions with them. You talk mm. to them about their addictions. I started learning, and and my supervisor started seeing that I actually was doing something. Then you get feedback from the client saying, "Oh, Lou is very good to talk to." So they picked interest in me and started training me. So they enrolled me to a, an NVQ. Now an NVQ, which is a National Vocational Qualification, is is in such a way that, for example, if I got a job as a, a radio presenter mm-hmm, here mm-hmm. and I have no qualification. There are certain national standards, let me say, for radio personalities. Mm-hmm. This is what is expected of you. This is what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to switch on the microphone. You're supposed to maybe listen. You're supposed to talk about maybe certain parameters. Mm-hmm. So they all those standards. So they will observe you and see, do you meet these standards? So if you meet them, then they tick you off as having knowledge Uh so that's what they used to do so it was experienced best learning Mm -hmm. so whatever you didn't know you had to demonstrate that you have learned and can do so that's how i learned my counseling Mm -hmm. oh wow so eventually that's a fabulous system eh? it is it is so eventually i became after getting my nvq i became an assessor Mm -hmm. so my work was now to observe other people and give them the qualification that's where the assessor part comes in. It just sounds like, you know, it was like while you were working, you were never sat back and said, I'm waiting for this job to come to me. You know, some people have that attitude. Oh, you know, I can't find anything. The entire time you were working and as you were working, all these things would happen. So that's really fascinating. So is it, um, when does it start? Because you're saying for the, you know, national vocational qualifications. Yeah. Is this something that is introduced in the school system? in the UK or it comes later in life? It comes later in life. It's best, I mean, you can start an NVQ as a, as a school system. Mm-hmm. There are schools that offer it. Okay. But it's also given to people who are in, in a workplace mm-hmm. because, I mean, there are many people who get jobs and maybe you start as a receptionist because you are good at talking to people, mm-hmm. but you don't have the qualifications in customer service. So they have to give you an NVQ in customer service. Mm-hmm. But customer service has these parameters, you okay. see. Mm-hmm. So they will assess you based on those. I'll call them national standards for customer service. Mm-hmm. So they'll assess you based on those national standards and they then give you a qualification. And you have to demonstrate that in customer service, I have to be courteous. In customer service, I have to to talk to people. In customer service, I have to help people. In customer service, I have to help my work colleagues because customer service is not about me and the customer, but it's between you and your producer. For example, if your producer does not offer you a good service, Mm -hmm, then mm -hmm. you're not going to offer me a good service. So you have to understand all those dynamics. So it's both in school, but also in the workplace. But the workplace is mainly for people who have gotten jobs without the qualifications. Without like the f- if in Uganda, there's a lot of technical know-how mm-hmm. where people are given jobs, they don't have the qualifications, but that doesn't mean they cannot work. Mm-hmm. It means mean you, can you can't give them it. the qualifications later. Yes, okay. So the decision, you said seven years you were in the UK. Yes, Why did you decide to come back to Uganda? Now, my coming back to Uganda was kind of unfortunate. I think... Uh, These are my theories. The Labour government left power, so Mm -hmm. the Conservatives came in. Mm -hmm. And there were these whole things, the whole thing of immigration. It started back then and it ended with a whole Brexit thing because we were like, we have to keep our borders closed. Mm -hmm. We don't want foreigners, that kind of stuff. So I was a student. I went to the UK as a student. My wife followed me there as a student. Mm -hmm. So we studied at the end of it all. 
uh, were supposed to renew our visas and because we were students and we had finished our studies, mm-hmm. my workplace could not give me a work permit because they said that time the EU was very involved in England. So they said they can get all the workers they need from mm. the EU. So they don't need a foreigner. Oh, so okay. they're not going to spend much more. So our visas were cancelled. So we had to come back home. Okay. It was time to come back so home. So it was time to come back How home. How was that transition back to Uganda? It was difficult. I mean, there's a lot of uncertainty because, of course, you try to fight it in the courts of law mm-hmm. and you eventually fail. And they're like, no, you have to go. Mm-hmm. So you're given time to pack. And I remember on the 23rd of December 2010, boarded a flight back to Uganda. Just before Christmas. So there was the excitement of coming back to Uganda. But I remember two things that touched me. One was as soon as my son touched down at the airport and stepped on the floor, mm. on the tarmac, he started crying and running back towards the plane. I think the heat was too much for him. He started mm. running and crying. That was one. Then two, when we got onto Entebbe Road, the smell of dust. I think I didn't <laughs> smell dust in a long time. The smell of dust brought reality to me. And I was mm. like, I am back to Uganda. Mm-hmm. So I started thinking, what am I going to do? Of course, there's this whole thing. I'm from the UK. I have my qualifications. I'll get a job. You're basically positive. You know, things mm, are going to You're very hopeful. You're very hopeful. So you come back looking for accommodation, you find where to stay, and then reality starts sinking in. When you want to advertise, I mean, apply for a job, and you're like, where do I start? Mm-hmm. Who do I know? Remember, you've been away for seven years, and all your friends have moved on. Mm-hmm. And you more or less were building your life there. The other side, yes. Mm-hmm. You're building everything there. You haven't done anything this side. Yeah. Because you hardly travel. So you leave where you had started afresh, you come back to start afresh in Uganda. Yeah. Mm. So it was daunting, but yeah, managed to. Eventually found your way. Yeah. So how did you become a loctician? Wow. Uh, and by the way, we're talking about locks hair, like dreadlocks, just for the record. <laughs> so a like, loctician. Uh, not padlocks. <laughs> not padlocks, yeah. <laughs> a loctician is someone who does dreadlocks, who makes locks out of people's hair. That's mm-hmm. where the term comes in, a loctician. Mm-hmm. So I remember when I was in England, I grew dreadlocks. It's a passion I always had to have dreadlocks. I remember I first tried in senior six mm-hmm. in vacation. I had the like crazy hair. I remember from senior two, I used to have crazy hair, what they call the shaggy dreads. Now I used to have that crazy hair mm-hmm. and people used to look at me and call me things. There's a time I remember in my first year, uh, a lecturer called me Rasta Rob MC and I'm thinking, <laughs> have some respect for the guy. He's, <laughs> he's, I, I he's a big guy. He's a big guy. I can't be, but basically because of the hair, but because it was also, they were stereotyping. Yeah. At that, at that point mm. it wasn't a compliment it was actually being stereotyped so when I go to England I have this freedom to do whatever I want with my hair my bosses didn't mind me having mm-hmm. any type of it hair it didn't so reflect badly on you in nothing, the workplace and no mm-hmm. so I grow my locks I went to a place where they used to do my locks so when I came back to Uganda I remember before I came back, I bought a book about how to care about my dreadlocks. I had this attitude, I'm going to Uganda, do they know what to do Mm. with my hair? And because I had sat in a professional salon, I didn't think I would get the same in Uganda. So I bought everything that I needed to do my hair. Wow. Mm -hmm. So I remember I had a mobile dryer, I had combs, I had everything. So I come back to Uganda 
I meet guys with dreadlocks and I ask them who does your hair. They show me certain salons for certain purposes. I won't mention names. So I walk into the salons. They try doing my hair, but the OCD in me just could not accept that this is done right. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so one time I went to a salon and told my wife that I'm going to this salon. They're doing my hair. It's a big salon in Kampala. Mm. They did my hair. I told the guy what to do. He just didn't have the patience. So I walked out and I said, you know what? I have everything at home. I'm going to dry my hair at home. You do it yourself. So he he first twisted my hair, left it very wet. I asked him, I told him my hair is not dry. He said he put me back into the dryer, but you could see he was irritated and I thought I'm not going to fight with this one. So I walked out, paid him. I didn't show him I was unhappy. Mhm. I just thought to myself I can't go and do this by myself at home because I was doing my hair. Mhm. So as soon as I walked into the house my wife looks at me and says you're from the salon I said yes. He said but you know you do your hair better than that. Mhm. So I thought that's when I thought you know what let me start doing my own hair. So I started doing my own hair. This was the first 6 months of coming to coming, coming back, back to Uganda. Uganda. But remember I had studied photography in the UK. Mm-hmm. So I oh, went, studied photography. I studied photography. Mm. So my fallback position, my my backup plan was always if I don't get a job, I will do photography. You remember I was looking at the wedding market, you can make like 2M mm-hmm. a weekend. Mm-hmm. If those are four weekends, that is like 8M. That mm-hmm. can sustain you. So that was my plan. You come to Uganda, the reality, no one knows you, no one is giving you a gig. Mm-hmm. So things are not so good. So I thought I have some money let me open up a studio. Mm-hmm. Started looking for premises for some reason I failed to get premises they're telling you I think $30 a square meter something like that mm-hmm. and I'm thinking can I afford this can it be sustainable? Mm-hmm. So in the process of doing my own hair and looking for space for photography I started meeting people who would tell me and then I've cut my dreads short they were really long. Okay. So you meet people who are like oh your dreadlocks are very long where do you do them from? I do them myself. Can't you do my hair as well? I'll be like Fine if you can come to my home I can do your your hair. So I started moving between homes, either my home or the <laughs> client's home. Uh-huh. So one time I thought to myself, then I was charging about 40,000 for doing dreadlocks. Mm-hmm. So I thought to myself, if I charge 40,000 and get about three clients, that is 120,000 a day. Mm-hmm. In 30 days that's a little bit more than 3 million that mm-hmm. can sustain me those are better than the offers i was getting for jobs of 700,000 uh-huh. so i thought i have money i need to open up a salon mm-hmm. i failed to open up a salon but luckily a friend of mine who i was with in the uk bless him his his sister i don't know i think she was too busy to run her salon and mm-hmm. offered it to me to mm-hmm. buy so mm-hmm. i bought the salon so i buy this salon in nakawa The salon I still have and I'm thinking okay let me run this salon while I look for a job. Mm-hmm. And that was the plan. Mm-hmm. 12 years later I'm still in the salon <laughs> business. So that's how I get into doing locks. Okay. Uh, But it's so important for someone to have a skill with their hands. I keep telling my daughters it's important to have a skill with your hands because you can never really go wrong. Even if you fail to get a job, maybe you can bake, you can cook, you can do hair and you've just, you know, talked about how even though you had that professional background, you moved into the hair business. True. Okay. Back then, do you feel like a lot more people were into dreadlocks? Has that changed over time? A lot has changed. Back then, there were few people. Mm-hmm. There were really few people 
into dreadlocks, very, very few. And people looked at dreadlocks as something for musicians, Rastafarians. Yeah. So it was not embraced. Right now, I mean, I have... What do they call it? I don't want to name drop, but I have I have CEOs mm-hmm. of, of big banks who are my clients. Mm-hmm. I have CEOs of big companies who are my clients. People have accepted. There's still stigma, but there's a lot more acceptance now mm-hmm. because they are seeing the benefits. One, it's your own hair. Yeah. Two, it's convenient. Mm-hmm. Three, you don't spend. I mean, sometimes the initial cost is is, is really high, mm-hmm. but but it's convenient. Over time, you're spending less. You're spending... For me, the biggest thing is time. Like, if you have straight hair, you're probably in the salon every two weeks or even every week because you have to set or wash your hair. Mm-hmm. With locks, I give you an appointment once every month or every six weeks. Mm-hmm. So, because of that, a lot more people are embracing locks. Uh-huh. Yeah. And I feel like in a lot of professional spaces as well, that acceptance you're saying is much higher now. It Do, is. Back in the day, people were like, oh, you can't have that kind of hair. But no, if it's neat, if it's done well, True. it doesn't reflect on your ability. <laughs> it's amazing how society really has these weird standards sometimes. Very true. Okay, so 12 years later, you're still in the salon business. Did you pick up on the photography? 12 years later, I opened, I mean, I opened up a studio from 2012. I ran it until lockdown. Okay. So when lockdown happened, everything was closed. Okay. So I could not run the studio. Mm-hmm. I had a, a colleague who was running it for me. I had employed him. Mm-hmm. But because I couldn't pay him, mm-hmm. he had the skill. And I had actually become very busy because of hair. If I show you my calendar, <laughs> even if coming for this interview, I had to look and reschedule some work. <laughs> so... Getting me to do someone's wedding became mm-hmm. very difficult. Yeah. So I, I told him, I mean, if you have the money, why don't you buy this? Because you're basically running this business yourself. Mm-hmm. I just come here to collect the money that you've made. Mm-hmm. Right now, I can't afford to pay you. Why don't you raise money and take it on as your own thing? So that's how he bought me out and ah. I stayed with the hair. Okay, all right. Well, thank you so much for coming in and sharing your journey. It's been so interesting. (laughs) I've been thoroughly fascinated. But also, it seems you are a person who is very quick to adapt to, you know, whatever situation comes your way, challenges. um, And you've been in the professional space. Now you're in a more creative space, even though you still are a professional. Mm -hmm. Um, What advice do you have for someone who's listening in right now, maybe looking to change their life, looking at making, you know, some changes here and there. Before I answer that, I'll take you back. I was discussing with someone who I met out at the reception today mm-hmm. and said, I grew up in Bukolovi mm-hmm. and there were certain expectations about Bukolovi. And I think because our parents were civil servants, the way we were brought up, I want to take Bukolovi out of this because you don't have to grow up in Bukolovi or anywhere. It doesn't have to be a posh place, but wherever you are, there are certain things that my childhood shaped. Okay. My parents brought us in such a way that we were never to accept mediocrity. Mm-hmm. I remember the only one of the only times I remember my mother beating me was because I said something and she spit me so badly and said, I will not accept my son to have an inferiority complex. Mm-hmm. And up to today, that thing has gone. I mean, has, has, stayed, with has you. stayed with me. Now, in my senior four, I could have dropped out of school because my father 
could not afford school fees i was taken to the village i remember selling sugarcane on the roadside to guys uh, i mean uh, like the equivalent of namawajolo that's what mm-hmm. i was doing in my senior for vacation mm-hmm. i could have gotten stuck there i had to jump out and come back to kampala and look for a school that i studied my whole a level the whole of senior five without paying school fees i was getting favors from the head teacher because i was performing well but mm-hmm. i didn't have the money and i studied on a promise that i was going to pay okay but that was a life changing moment for me i told myself that wherever i go i will make sure i am um, i think i'm speaking a lot that i'm forgetting my english <laughs> you know when you're in a situation where for example if they're going to restructure mm-hmm. i always told myself whenever there's a restructure i will make sure i am not amongst the first people to be let go oh so indispensable indispensable mm-hmm. i said i will make sure i am not i i i mean i'll make sure i am indispensable mm-hmm. when i went to cork i started as a stock uh, a warehouse clerk i used to receive trucks from the street and right i remember my salary was about 120000 mm-hmm. by that time i left cork i was a stock controller mm-hmm. i was in charge of the whole warehouse and that was a period of 1 to 2 years wow so wherever i went i made sure i took on other responsibilities mm-hmm. when i was in cork i became an, an internal auditor i was not paid for it but i i realized if i take on this extra i will become indispensable mm-hmm. if i take on this extra i will learn more when i was in england i remember at my salvation army job mm-hmm. doing the nvq was optional they would never force it on you okay. remember i was a student mm-hmm. i'm studying marketing mm-hmm. I had no desire being a counselor. My focus was marketing. Mm-hmm. But I took on the NVQ role because I knew I would get something extra out of it. Okay. When I came back to Uganda, started my salon. Mm-hmm. I said I'm going to be different from any salon person. I'll proudly say I was one of the first people to start working on appointment mm-hmm. and up to today I keep my appointment to the T. If okay, you tell me to you be focus here on at that. 11 I will be here at 11. So what am I trying to say if you decide to do something do 101%. Mm-hmm. People say if you whatever you do do it well but what I'm hearing is not just do it well go over and go above. Over and above. Mm-hmm. Honesty is very important. Integrity. Mm-hmm. Integrity is very important. Mm-hmm. If you give someone your word let it be your word. Okay. And my word for the young people now is get rid of this entitlement. Mm-hmm. You're not entitled to anything apart from what you have worked hard for. Mm. I hear you. So those are my parting shots. Well, Louis, thank you so much for joining me. Thank Pleasure you. having you on the Groove Cafe. Same here. Thank you. <laughs> Groove Cafe.